Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Hello and you're welcome to The Big Tech Show with me, Adrian Weckler, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent. And this week, we're going to talk about data privacy and Brexit and a no-deal Brexit in particular. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Catherine O'Keefe, Director of Training and Research at Castlebridge, which is a data protection specialist firm here in Dublin. Catherine, very welcome to the show. Or Dr. O'Keefe, rather. Um, Now, we've seen in the last week or so, the UK government kicked off a multi-million pound marketing campaign to try and prepare citizens over there of the practical effects of a no-deal Brexit outcome. But one of the things they haven't really factored in in a prominent way is what happens to data transfers. And you know, over here, it's something the Irish government has been talking about a little bit, where in a situation where there's a no-deal Brexit, that might have implications for data transfers from... Ireland and the rest of you into the UK, more particularly into the UK than from the UK uh, into Ireland. And there are worst case scenarios being painted of, you know, organizations or businesses not being able to, you know, email or or transfer data other ways into the UK. Should we be worried about that? Yes. Um, We don't know what the worst case scenario will look like yet Mm. still because there's still so much uncertainty. But uh, as early as 2015, when they first started talking about Brexit and you know, even before the referendum was actually called, we uh, were, we're nerds. We like doing flowcharts and things like that. So mm. we mapped out the possible uh, things that could happen when it comes to Brexit. When you say we, do you mean uh, Castlebridge? Castlebridge, yeah. uh, my colleague Dara and myself in particular. Yeah. I've uh, seen some of Dara's charts. They can get a bit zany. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much what's happened right now is we did a decision tree and the worst possible choice in each decision has happened so far. How do you mean? Uh, We are heading straight towards going off a cliff and actually having no uh, lawful, uh, possibly no lawful means of uh, transferring data. So just to explain Mm -hmm. that, because the Data Protection Commission's office here has explained before the the idea of this idea of adequacy. So when the UK leaves the European Union, certain countries do have what are called a status of adequacy. And the examples are given, even countries like, say, Argentina, Israel. So that means that if you want to do business with a company there, our data protection regime in the EU regards the data protection ecosystems that they have there as being adequate at a minimum level for you to do most day-to-day business, right? 
Yeah. So adequacy, basically, uh, one of the European <laughs> Courts of Justice rulings uh, a couple years back was looking at transfers of data to the United States, determined that adequacy basically means uh, having equivalent protections. Um, and the UK tends to be assuming that because they implemented GDPR, because they've had you know, pretty strong you know, regulatory similarity to mm. the rest of the EU, uh, and have been within Europe, that they will automatically be able to be adequate. But the reality is that there is absolutely no guarantee of that after 31st of October. And if you look at the standards that the European Commission looks for, for making those adequacy decisions that, for instance, Argentina has, uh, and uh, you look at what the European Courts of Justice have said when it comes to ruling whether or not something like that safe harbor uh, mechanism by which we use yeah. to transfer data to the United States, uh, the UK doesn't actually meet those standards, and there are a few reasons for that. Uh, the first one uh, is a few laws that they have brought in over the past couple years. One's called the Investigatory Powers Act. Uh, it was nicknamed the Snoopers Charter oh, for good yes. reason. Um, so one of the things that allows the UK government to do is bulk interception of communications data, so mm. surveillance of pretty much anything going in and out mm. uh, communications-wise, and what they call targeted and in some cases bulk interference. That's basically UK authorizing their own government hacking anyone's computer globally uh, if they think they have a good reason to. Yeah. So that does not meet uh, generally uh, what the European Courts of Justice would have as standards mm -hmm. for uh, proportionate legislation in line with human rights. Uh, so that's one thing. Yeah, that's a big thing. <laughs> that's a big thing, yeah. Uh, there was also a recent discovery that uh, British police officers had illegally made copies of Schengen databases uh, without authorization and uh, provided unauthorized access to third parties, including uh, tech companies like IBM, from what I understand. So that just came out in the news uh, two days ago, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's other regulatory divergence as well. There's something called the Digital Economy Bill, which basically requires uh, in the UK a nationwide net nanny and then puts uh, anyone who verifies their age to uh, access what they uh, consider to be adult content yeah, onto porn, a big database. The porn pass. Yeah, uh, yeah your, your porn pass. Yeah. Uh, there, there's been a lot of work done by academics in the UK on how bad of an idea that is to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, so and do, you, do you think that would fall foul or that would be frowned upon that when would the commission... fall foul because what you've got there is a uh, law that requires uh, you to be put on a database yeah. uh, verifying your identity that database so far the way it looks like they've uh, organized it is actually owned by a porn company so you're, you're creating mass registration mm. of people in order to access content online so it, maybe it's the way that they're doing it rather than the idea itself, because the idea of creating an age database is a very controversial one mm -hmm. for, to access adult material, but it does have its proponents as well. There are a lot of, you know, concerned parents, Yeah, et, there are a lot of people who want to protect their children. Yeah. The problem with uh, everything that's been uh, looked at so far is that it just doesn't work. Doesn't work. So you have a uh, you know, massively invasive solution that doesn't solve what mm. you want it to solve. But, uh, it, but if the UK decides... Mm -hmm to pursue that anyway, is there any way that they could pursue a database of that type and not fall foul fundamentally of concerns the commission would have uh, when it was adjudicating on inadequacy? 
That's a very good question. It was basically something that would end up being answered by the European Courts of Justice, right. but of course they're not within, or won't be within that uh, system uh, mm -hmm. you know, come November. So to so, go back to the mm -hmm. first reason, which was a very mm -hmm. big one, uh, the Snoopers Charter, and essentially powers given to authorities to uh, intercept or hack. How does it work? We mentioned Israel, for example, and Israel has an assumption of adequacy. I mean, comparing Israel to the UK, I would have thought Israel definitely does all of those things. Very possibly. Uh, and that's where the complicated politics of uh, things that the European Commission has decided with regards to adequacy and mm -hmm. then uh, standards that might end up being challenged up to the European Courts of Justice come through. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things we're actually looking at as an issue right now with the question of uh, standard contract clauses. The European Commission had decided that this way to transfer data is okay. Um, but just to take a step back, yeah. just for listeners who mm -hmm. may not be completely conversant with the idea of a standard a contract clause, just explain yeah. what that is. Yeah. So basically, standard contract clauses are one of the ways that you can legally transfer data to a third country outside of the European Economic Area that has not necessarily been assessed to be adequate by the European Commission. Mm -hmm. And why is it called a standard contract clause? Like, yeah. Is, is so it basically, the they, they're literally contractual clauses mm -hmm. that have been verified by the Commission as a way that you you do not change a single comma in mm -hmm. these uh, clauses that you put into your contract guaranteeing yeah guaranteeing particular uh, uh, protections mm -hmm. around data uh, and so uh, the European Commission basically said, okay, if companies put these contracts in place, they have uh, guaranteed a standard of protection so you can transfer data to those countries even if they're in a country that doesn't uh, actually have the uh, you know, equivalent standards of protection that European law does. And what would the more prominent or bigger countries be that we might have dealings with that don't have those uh, those protections and that we do have to rely on the likes of standard contract clause. The big one right now is the U.S. Uh, and right now there's a uh, case uh, being decided by the European Courts of Justice regarding Facebook's use of data using uh, standard contractual clauses and one other legal mechanism that we don't necessarily need to get into right now. Yeah, but, that's the uh, whole yeah. business of the High Court, Max yeah. Schrems. Yeah, um, exactly. Whole hoo-ha over that mm -hmm. of, of the last five or six years, which we could spend an entire podcast cast out on mm -hmm. in and of itself. But to, to again, to take a, a step back and look at this in the round, if the US is a country that currently does not meet the rules of adequacy, doesn't that as an idea or as a basic concept seem to fly in the face of what ordinary business people think and know? Like if, if you if you run a startup business and you're dealing with someone else in the States, it's kind of taken as given that you can do that, isn't, isn't it? It's something that you really need to step back and look at. And again, you know, I'm, you know, as you can probably tell from my accent, yeah. uh, originally from the United States. I couldn't place your accent. <laughs> I'm usually very good at placing American accents. Where are you from? Originally California. California yeah. 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 Um, but I've been here for over 15 years, so it's a little bit mid-Atlantic of an accent now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, watching what is going on in the United States right now, 
what you are seeing is, frankly, human rights abuses. And a lot of that does have data use wrapped around it. Mm -hmm. So if you look at what's happening, if you look at particularly what's happening on the border, the use of surveillance uh, when it comes to what is happening uh, with immigration, what's happening, frankly, if you decide to travel to the United States right now as a tourist, you'll be told you need to give, uh, very likely be told you need to give your social media account information mm -hmm. so that they can see what you're writing online. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly invasive, and uh, the more you look into it, the scarier it is. Mm -hmm. So the question of adequacy isn't really there. Uh, we tend to transfer data business-wise to the United States all the time. A lot of our email providers, our you know, various cloud services, all started in Silicon Valley. Most, most of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so we're used to transferring data all the time. Uh, but we need to be considering uh, contingencies for if, you know, again, if this uh, Max Strums 2 case gets decided saying that standard contractual clauses are not actually adequate protections, we need to consider those as well as Brexit. I mean, in layman's terms, if that is struck mm -hmm. down, and a lot of people believe that the mm -hmm. idea of a standard contractual clause uh, will be struck down by the European Court of justice. That means we've, we've safe har harbor was al al already struck out. Privacy shield looks very wobbly indeed. Yeah. So then no standard contractual clauses. What does that actually mean in real day to day business for the ordinary person and the ordinary uh, business? In real day-to-day -day terms, one of the things you should be doing is looking for other options. Uh, what we're doing in Castlebridge for ourselves, uh, one of the things we just did looking towards Brexit was we changed our HR services provider, you know, the timesheets uh, you know, cloud-based service that yeah. we had. Uh, we were using one based in the UK. Uh, at the end of the contract, we switched to one based in Ireland. But supposing, because this is Ireland, <laughs> yeah. supposing most businesses don't do that and they keep their existing supplier, they keep transferring data to the US, to the UK, what happens? Uh, you're at a massive risk uh, of, frankly, breaking the law. Uh, but who would enforce that law? That would be the regulator, possibly. Now, the silver lining in all this uncertainty is because there is so much uncertainty, the regulator is probably going to be, and this would be the Data Protection Commission mm -hmm. in Ireland, probably going to uh, be a little bit more benign in the position they take on companies that suddenly have to figure out how to lawfully transfer data to uh, places outside of the European economic area that aren't necessarily uh, safe to transfer data. But one of the things that we are seeing quite a bit of right now as well, and Schrems is one case, is we're seeing a lot of uh, activists who are going to take the legal route mm. and sue companies. Uh, so that's another possibility. So that might be a way of enforcing that. Because yeah. otherwise, I mean, I was going to ask, what if companies just ignore it? And, and, and uh, someone like yourself, or maybe even myself, might point out at some stage that they're, uh, they're operating contra to European data protection law, they'll say, so what? Yeah. What um, happens? Like, they, they just ignore the law and, and the Data Protection Commission doesn't come, uh, come after them. We're talking tens of thousands of businesses now. Mm -hmm. Nobody meaningfully comes after them because, you know, because it's just too difficult to go after that many businesses. Yeah, th this is one of the places that GDPR has 
actually caused more of a uh, possibility for people uh, bringing lawsuits against various businesses. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but I've heard people starting to talk about it in the activist uh, yeah. area, is that uh, there is the possibility of if a company is violating your rights by not mm -hmm. adequately protecting your data, uh, that just because they have, in fact, broken the law, it's uh, strict liability, they can come after a company for violating their rights. That's what I was going to ask, because normally when you sue mm -hmm. somebody, certainly in Ireland, I think it's a general principle in common law countries as well, it's a tortious thing. So you kind of have to prove not just that somebody has broken the law, but also that you have suffered harm from it. Yeah. And, and in an Irish court, like... If I want to say, sue, say, a sports, a, a massive sports club that I'm a member of that is transferring my data to an American uh, cloud provider, how do I actually prove harm from that? And this is where GDPR is making it so that you most likely won't have to prove harm. Yeah. Um, it's strengthened protections that we already had mm -hmm. under the old data protection regulations there. And another thing that it's done, well, Ireland has not had the uh, ability to have uh, class action lawsuits in the past. GDPR basically requires that countries allow for what's pretty much the equivalent of class action lawsuits to happen. Do you know, I've often wondered why so many lawyers in Ireland are so interested in G GDPR. <laughs> and when you say the word class action lawsuit, if I'm a lawyer, I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> drop everything else I'm doing. Let's get interested in uh, in GDPR. Now, there are some very reputable, respectable um, lawyers who've been on this issue for uh, for many years. One or two of them, I do suspect, are in, are in it for more than the nobility of it. But, um, you know... The, well, you have to make a living. <laughs> well, you have to make a living, but... Um, <laughs> I suppose on the legal spectrum, there is a line somewhere between ambulance chasing and, uh, you know, uh, doing it to protect the, the little guy. Absolutely. And I'd like to think that most of the prominent voices here are more the latter than the former, but I'm pretty sure that there are one or two that are, are ambulance chasers. But anyway, we, we, uh, we, the point you're making is that you don't necessarily, I don't necessarily have to prove that somebody has hacked my data and accessed my financial information, that if I or a group of people, including me, decided to take action against the organization that was transfer, illegally transferring my data to a country um, that doesn't have adequacy, be it the UK or the US, that is enough to to get a result but then why would i do that unless i was going to get a payout of you know five or ten thousand euro i like would i just do it for the just to make a point that seems to be where the first things are coming from uh, one to make a point two to make people stop because they're upset that frankly their fundamental human rights are being mm. violated um, and that, that's where, you know, frankly, I'm seeing more likely that the, the activists that I've been talking to uh, are looking at is they're looking at people who are actually being harmed and trying to figure out how can we make these organizations change their behavior. So it's not necessarily I want to make money, mm. but I want them to stop. Yeah. How do you think that's going to work with the North in, in Ireland? That's one of the frightening things. Even things like the uh, pensioners' travel pass. Right mm -hmm. now, we have all island uh, free travel. 
Uh, I don't know how that can continue uh, if there is no uh, withdrawal agreement. So again, one of the differences you know, between no deal and actually having the withdrawal agreement is uh, if Brexit happens with the uh, withdrawal agreement signed, there is uh, a transition period that gives the UK and the EU time to figure out what possible basis there will be, so you could still transfer data. Uh, if there is no deal, as soon as November 1st happens, they are what's called a third country. Uh, so instead of being you know, the equivalent of Argentina, they're equivalent of transferring data to Kazakhstan which, by the way, Kazakhstan also has data protection law, mm. and it actually follows the principles that uh, uh, our data protection law does as well. But it's not considered to be adequate. So then go back to the, the travel pass then. Yeah. Uh, the uh, civil service that uh, you know, manages the tra travel pass in Ireland won't necessarily have a legal capability to transfer the data of people using free travel to Northern Ireland. So... What do they do with it? What do they do with that data? It's likely that the free travel pass will only work within the Republic. I don't know this. It's a guess, but that's one situation where suddenly we go off a cliff and nobody knows what's going to happen because we probably don't have the ability to uh, you know, send data to Northern Ireland. Just and you'll forgive me, as I'm not mm -hmm. uh, familiar with the intricacies of how the travel pass works in that context. So that the travel pass wouldn't work in the north, meaning that what if I have a travel pass issued in the south, is it? Yeah. That when I, so if you're a pensioner, you've got free travel. Yeah. One of the things that happens right now is the uh, department in Ireland and the department in Northern Ireland share data between each other. Yep. So that you can make sure that you know, things are properly accounted for. Mm -hmm. uh, but there has to be a reason to justify sending data across the border to what will be a third country. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a legal justification to do so, to guarantee that you're actually making sure that that data is not being abused, then you cannot lawfully transfer that data. So you know, currently, it's all just been within Europe, within you know, uh, common travel area, within very, very closely intertwined systems. So uh, people haven't really been thinking about it. So that on a practical level, then, if you have your travel pass in your hand and you, I don't know if it works, mm -hmm. if we're using an RFID system, like a, a tap on, tap off, or you've, in the old days, you just showed it to the conductor. Yeah. I assume that there's some electronic means of doing it uh, now. So that when you tap it against the machine, that what, the machine doesn't recognize your card because they've had to delete the data? Possibly, or they won't have a lawful reason to process it. It could be just a bit like having an invalid ticket, but I don't know yet. We don't know yeah. yet because we haven't seen, we haven't you know, seen what possible plans have been put in place. Mm. Um, another thing to think about is just CCTV. By the way, just, just on that, before we leave that, mm -hmm. would that only work one way? So we wouldn't be allowed to, to send data to the north, but the UK have said, or they've suggested that they will continue sending data to the EU. So we would still get data about their pensioners. Possibly. Uh, so well, this well is, we would yeah. though, couldn't we? Because mm -hmm. we, it's not a case, what you're saying is that we would not be allowed to share data about our pensioners with them. Yeah. Now, they've suggested that they will still keep sharing uh, data about their pensioners with us. So the, the, the Belfast pensioner who wants to uh, take buses and darts and Lewis's in Dublin will still be able to do it 
because because we we don't have any GDPR or data protection adequacy reason for not processing their data. Exactly. But they it's the other way around. They, they so so that, this is where it gets complicated again. Yeah. And this is completely guesswork at yeah, this no, point. Yeah, no, I understand that. Yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to figure out the scenario mm-hmm. here. So the scenario here that we have is uh, the. Uh, UK has basically done the equivalent of a search and replace mm. on their legislation mm-hmm. so that GDPR will now be the UK Data Protection Act or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the things that their legislation says might not, not necessarily match what they're planning. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the requirements, for instance, uh, when it comes to uh, you know, sharing data across, okay, GDPR is kind of the gold standard. Uh, they will probably consider that to be adequate protection, so they will shouldn't have trouble sending data to the EU. Mm-hmm. That should be no problem whatsoever. Um, but one of the things that GDPR and the UK Data Protection a- Act have in there is a requirement for what's called a nominated representative. Uh, so if you are a UK business or a third country business that wants to, uh, you know, establish themselves in the EU and uh, you know, sell things to people in the EU, process EU people's data, uh, you have to have someone who's basically acting as a representative uh, for the controller, the, the business that's deciding what's happening to the data in the EU that the regulator can talk to, that people can complain to, uh, and that basically is someone who acts as a representative for the business. Uh, the EU legislation has that. Obviously, GDPR has that. The UK legislation also has that because they haven't removed it. They just kind of did a search and replace on mm-hmm. legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so EU companies that want to transfer, uh, sorry, that want to process mm-hmm. the data of people from the UK mm-hmm. may also need a nominated representative in the UK. Mm-hmm. So it's it's ridiculously complicated, and so maybe that is it. a backdoor way of um, trying to patch up the situation while they wait for adequate. If if an organization is big enough, maybe they have the wherewithal to get on that and try and uh, figure a way out through that route. One would think so, possibly. Um, you know, probably one of the things that's going to happen, you know, the go-to guidance from the regulator for making sure that you can transfer data back and forth to third countries is those standard contractual clauses. Mm. They're currently under challenge. Now, the nominated representative is just having someone there that the regulator can talk to. It doesn't mm. make things legal uh, to transfer. Oh, okay, it. I yeah. understand. So that may not um, be an incident. Yeah, so, so it's just one added complication there. But this is, see, this gets to the meat and the bones of it, which is what I was trying to get at from the beginning of this podcast, because we, when we talk about data protection, we often talk in terms of concepts, and it's often an academic exercise. I know you would say that's not the case. It has real effect. And le- but to many people, uh, it does. It's not concrete. <laughs> yeah, but here's a concrete mm-hmm. example now. So what we're saying is, in one particular set of circumstances, it is possible that the free travel pass that pensioners have stops working in the North. It's possible. Another very concrete one uh, is banking and consumer credit. Okay. Uh, so consumer credit agencies or online banking agencies uh, transferring data to the UK to do business. Uh, if you know, Brexit happens without a deal, we'll have no basis to transfer that data. 
Okay, and now we're getting into a much more regulatory compliant class of companies here. So yeah. banks, so they get mm -hmm. way more freaked out about this. So they are way more likely to to do something about this or to panic over it or to act on it quickly. Yeah, at least in Ireland. And uh, of course, we're not only looking at the DPC as a regulator there, we're looking at the central bank as a regulator. So they have two regulators that you know, will be staring at them uh, and you know, making sure that they so uh, look at things. in terms of trying to put a concrete example on that, like when people get a mortgage in Ireland, for example, it's usually it's almost always with an Irish financial institution here yeah. in, in Dublin or here or elsewhere in Ireland. What are the situations where that might affect people? We've been working with a uh, client that's a large retailer um, and they have finance through their things. And we've been working with them trying to get an answer out of a UK based uh, 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 financial provider that they use for over a year as to what their contingency plans are. And the UK-based bank has not had an answer. But how would that affect people? Uh, your uh, loyalty cards, not necessarily loyalty cards, but your, your, your cards that you have with various uh, retailers that you might have. Uh, your payment cards. Your payment cards. Mm -hmm. Now, the ones you have through your bank, they are mostly sorted. And UK banks have been So give me an example probably, of a payment card that doesn't come from your bank. Uh, uh, take any uh, large... Um, supermarket retail? Yeah, uh, supermarket retail would per perhaps be, or you know, just any sort of uh, department store. If you have a department store card. So if you have a department store card, and like it has, do you mean if it has credit on it? Yeah. Okay, so that's common enough. Yeah, it's pretty um, common. People give gifts uh, of at Christmas time or for birthdays of a card for Arnett's or wherever it is for, you know, 100 euro, 200, whatever it is. Yeah. In what circumstances does that, uh, how does an, a no-deal Brexit affect the value of that card or being able to use that card? Um, if it's one that the data has to be transferred to the UK for the transaction to happen or for the credit to, on the card to be acknowledged, then there could be a big oh, problem. Oh, so you walk into the store, you have something, you go up to pay for it, you present the card and you know there's 100 euro on that card because you haven't used it. And the machine doesn't recognize it or it says it's invalid because it hasn't been able to process the information on that card back to, say, a UK server or UK base? That could happen. Honestly, I don't think that will happen. Right. Um, you know, again, this is very much guesswork as yeah, yeah, to sure, how, yeah. how how organizations will respond. Oh, we're just trying to figure it out. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out a worst-case yeah. no, scenario. The, I think that the worst-case scenario there is probably you know, at the back end, that mm. company that's probably you know, the bank based in the UK mm -hmm. that is supposed to be processing those transactions mm -hmm. can't do it lawfully. They can't process the transaction. But would yeah. that not have the same effect in so far as then you can't spend the money in the card? Possibly. And it's very, very difficult for us to know at this point because it is so uncertain because, are, are frankly, there... everyone's in denial still. Yeah. Well, you're saying that you are you have looked at one mm -hmm. scenario where, like that, where a retailer uses a UK bank. Yeah. Okay, so it does exist. It does exist. Uh, how the actual actions will happen, mm. frankly, we have no clue. All we do know is that that particular rather large UK-based bank mm. has not engaged with the possibility that there could be a problem. Like a cynic would look at that and go, there's no way that your card is not going to be honored, you know. 
Yeah, I, I'm guessing probably the card will be honored, but then the uh, bank may end up in such regulatory trouble that mm. they no longer are able to actually function. So the bank might be taking the risk there. Yeah, the bank would definitely be taking the risk. Yeah, so that's a mm -hmm. different scale of things because we yeah. don't have as much sympathy for the banks <laughs> as we do for... Uh, for the consumer, but ultimately mm -hmm. one would argue what well, you should because that means they might pull their services and that's going to affect what's available in the market or might affect credit scores. Or Yeah. You, did you mention CCTV as well? Yeah. If you think just how our border with Northern Ireland is, mm. there are probably plenty of CCTV, cam CCTV cameras pointing one way or the other across mm -hmm. the border. Um, a CCTV camera pointing over the Irish border mm -hmm. uh, would be recording the personal data of people in the Republic of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And that you know, is not actually lawful if there isn't a uh, ability but who, to. Who yeah. would go after them for that? Um, Irish regulator could. So yeah, yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. How would an Irish regulator go after a British-based security authorities? You would likely have again someone in Ireland complaining. Yeah. Um, in that case, you know, we still do have some cross-border communication. Mm -hmm. uh, an Irish person could take a complaint to the ICO mm -hmm. in the UK as well. Uh, so you know, it's just one of these things, where are you going to point your camera? Yeah. Um, you know, and if you are you know, in Ireland pointing at both directions, then you're definitely dealing with the Irish regulator. If you're in the UK pointing in both directions, yeah. you're probably going to be dealing with both regulators. Yeah. The transport thing, to be honest now, mm -hmm. that's that's the biggest one. That would have a significant disruptive effect. And uh, and as soon as you talk about pensioners and you talk mm -hmm. about free travel passes, you know, you're into a whole uh, genre of people who um, will really let their voices be heard if, yeah. if something happens there. That strikes me as the kind of thing that would get the government moving way faster than... Uh, than something else, even CCTV. Yeah. Another one, frankly, any sort of cross-border trade. Uh, now, the one thing that will probably be safe is transferring of data for customs purposes. Yeah, filling out your customs forms, that'll yeah. be fine. But think about ordering online at Amazon. Where yes. are you ordering from? Amazon.co.uk. Yeah. <laughs> so Amazon.co.uk. Yeah, we do it all the time. It's the, uh, you know, the business area of the UK and Ireland. But... On what sort of grounds will Amazon.co.uk be able to lawfully take and fulfill orders of people in the EU? Um, it's something that we've been dealing with with our uh, publisher. So my colleague Dara and I wrote a book. It's published with a UK-based publisher. Mm -hmm. We've been in conversations with them trying to figure out, so if we want to offer our book on our website to sell mm -hmm. it, do we have to buy a whole bunch of copies and store them physically in Ireland so we can fulfill the orders ourselves? Or will we be able to uh, you know, have the orders fulfilled through your website? Yeah. Uh, so it's all these little nitty-gritty details that, uh, you know, you know, theoretically speaking, safe transfers, you know, ad adequacy, all this stuff. But where is the data? Where are the things? And who are we ordering from? And it's so intertwined. Well, so there's buying things and retail and Amazon. What about holidays, booking holidays? Like we, a couple of weeks ago, we um, spent a week in Wales. We took the ferry, uh, brought the car over, packed it. Mm-hmm everything but the bloody kitchen sink but anyway rented a cottage in Wales Snowdonia nice place but we did it by uh, 
renting from a British website that rents cottages. Same thing? Yeah, pretty much the same thing as ordering off of Amazon. You're transferring data to them. They need to obviously, mm. you know, currently they are, they are under the same sorts of rules that we are with GDPR. Um, it's considered to be safe. Uh, that UK business uh, may decide that they don't have the ability to take the risk of taking uh, EU-based orders, or they may uh, not. But if you look, again, if you try going on uh, newspaper websites in the US right now from yeah. an Irish... Uh, well, uh, <laughs> there's, there's one newspaper group that drives me absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. It's the Tribune Media, the LA Times, Chicago yeah. Tribune. I, I, they block you. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, but but I, it, that strikes me as completely unnecessary because almost every other major newspaper group, mm-hmm. no problem with the Washington Post, New York Times, even the Chicago Sun-Times, which is the tabloid uh, in Chicago uh, compared to the, the Chicago Tribune, for a year now, if I want to uh, read, you know, a, a high-minded shall we say, analysis of the new Mayor Lightfoot's, uh, h- how she's getting on uh, in Chicago. I can't yep. because the Chicago <laughs> Tribune won't let me in. Yeah, and I do agree that it's absolutely unnecessary. And uh, my argument would actually be that what they're doing is less in compliance than if they didn't do that. Uh, absolutely you know, Because they're targeting the IP addresses of people in the EU to block them mm. as opposed to occasionally getting a bit of traffic from people that they're not advertising to. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, again, another like thing who completely. Who would go after them? Again, if you get someone like Max Trums, yeah. uh, who decides to get a bee in their bonnet on that and yeah. go hell for leather that, you know, this is what they're going to uh, mm. you know, you know, really, really try to make stop, that, that is a possibility that could happen. Because, um, yeah, it really irritates you. It really irritates really me. Really irritates me. <laughs> and, yeah, there, there isn't, uh, in my opinion, there isn't a good reason to do that, and they're actually making it worse by doing that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, th- this question of uh, you know, what sort of tracking is happening on those web pages, is it that non-compliant? Is it that invasive that they feel that the best thing to do is just block anyone in the EU from you know, actually looking at their website? It's it's a interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's completely unnecessary. I mean, we have heard from uh, Pat Breen, who is the minister here, uh, who seems to be out in front of um, data privacy and GDPR uh, more than um, anyone else. He said recently at a data protection conference, he said that um, in the event of a no-deal Brexit, the European Commission has clarified that no contingency measures such as an interim adequacy decision are foreseen. And this means that data transfers to the UK in the event of a no-deal Brexit must initially rely on alternative mechanisms other than an adequacy decision, which we have basically spent the last 20 minutes um, talking about. The European Commission, he says, has approved standard contractual clauses that can be inserted into contracts. But that might have been without prejudice to the result of the current action before the European Court of Justice. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why the DPC's questions uh, that they put up to the European Court of Justice are so important, Mm -hmm. because uh, we're getting into a situation where there need to be clear criteria, and we don't have them currently, on what decisions she can make. Yeah, there has been like some commentary on that. My 
understanding of the DPC's approach on this and Helen Dixon, why she has referred this in the first place to the European Court, essentially, what she was basically saying is the DPC here doesn't quite fully have the competence to rule on this matter. That seemed to be, to me, to be what she was saying. It was a more subtle, nuanced um, way of putting what the uh, the previous data protection commissioner here, Billy, Billy Hawks, Billy Hawks, once said to me when I interviewed him about seven, six, seven years ago, and this was around Safe Harbour, and at the time, it was when Schrems first came at the Irish DPC, and he referred it to Europe, and I asked him why he'd done that. Why couldn't you? rule that what Facebook was doing, given that we knew after Edward Snowden, this was just after Snowden's revelations, why couldn't you rule that uh, it didn't meet European standards? And he basically said it was above his pay grade, that this was something that big sovereign entities like the European Union in the US had to figure out themselves politically, because there was no way of making a judgment on this without reaching into a very, very heavily politicized um, uh, zone. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why I think what Helen Dixon did in referring these questions uh, was uh, quite canny, uh, was that uh, you know, on one hand, yeah, there's a lot of politics and we won't even go into the politics at all there, uh, but any decision she made, if she decided to take the decision herself, would be challenged, would eventually get challenged to the European Courts of Justice mm, anyway. anyway. It would go all the way yeah. up. But uh, it, one of the questions that she basically had is, what types of criteria can you use to make sure that a decision you're making at this level isn't arbitrary? Because mm. uh, you know, I would absolutely agree with Schrems that what Facebook is doing and the types of uh, surveillance of our data going on in those transactions are contrary to human rights and should be shut down. But if you use the decision-making criteria that are there, how can you ensure that you apply that in a non-arbitrary way? Uh, if you say, okay, Facebook can't use standard contractual clauses, then what about everyone else? So it's really, really important to make sure that there is a very, very clear standard by, by which decisions can be made. And at the moment, that's a little bit up in the air. How, you know, at what point can you say, okay, that thing that the European Commission has decided is okay shouldn't be applied in this case? Uh, uh, okay, so transferring data to the U.S., considering what's going on right there right now, is not okay. But that you know, standard contractual clauses that they use is the same one that is used uh, for other countries that are not doing those things. From the very start of this process, from the time that we found out of the Snowden revelations, what the US authorities were doing and how they were tapping into our communications, it really did occur to me that this entire issue, somebody was going to have to blink and somebody was going to have to back down. By somebody, I mean either US authorities or the European Court of Justice stroke European Commission. Somebody was going to have to blink because the essentially the problem that the EU, that we in the EU have with the UK or with the US is that they indiscriminately hoover up and monitor our communications. And also the question of oversight there uh, is incredibly uh, important. And, and yeah. oversight. Mm -hmm. But but the, even 
taking oversight into mm-hmm. account, even if there was some uh, level of oversight, they're going to continue to tap into all of our email and all of our phone calls. Now, we're pretty sure they're con- going to continue to do that. And now we have a position on the other side from the European Court of Justice and the European Commission that we cannot transfer data into a country that does that. Who's going to blink? That's a very good question. Um, if you're looking at the grassroots movements, uh, people in the U.S. want the standards of protections that GDPR is giving mm. people in the EU. They've been pushing for it for years. Um, you know, again, I grew up in California. Mm. Uh, frankly, people are often more concerned about privacy, uh, to my experience in the U.S., than they are in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Ireland is very concerned about our privacy mm-hmm. generally. But um, is is there even a remote possibility that U.S. authorities are going to uh, tone down their monitoring of our of our communications? There is a remote possibility, yes. Um, it's, you know, we are fighting an uphill battle and it's being fought on multiple fronts. Uh, but uh, if you look at state level right now, uh, so the federal level in the U.S. is very, very tied up with the lobbyists, and you can see that. Uh, and as is usual for anyone in power, once you have power, you don't like to give it up. Um, and also what's been seen in you know, outside of the U.S., uh, after the Snowden revelations, one of the main things that happened was not that the U.S. put more controls in place, which they actually did put some controls in place at that point, but that other countries, including European countries, went, well, we want that too. Uh, so you know, it's a very, very difficult battle against uh, the uh, massive power grab when surveillance powers that uh, but it's, do But happen. it's tied up and painted as a security measure to keep people mm-hmm. safe. That's the way it's Yeah, and that's presented. Uh, one, one of the battles uh, fronts that we do fight is trying to make people understand that security and privacy are not mutually exclusive things. They support each other. Yeah, although um, that's, the, that's mm-hmm. the genesis of this battle. And now mm-hmm. with the UK, as you see with the, the Snoopers Charter and, and other measures that you're saying may threaten the UK's um, uh, attainment of an adequacy status, I can't see the UK giving up those activities either, unless they just start lying about it. We know they're lying about it, They know, but it sort of ticks a box so we can trade with them. Yeah, I, I don't see uh, mutual line and uh, tick boxes happening uh, because... Well then, well, then we're not yeah. going to be trading with the UK. Very possibly. And I mean... We're, but that's not going to happen though, is it? We are going to be trading with the UK, surely. I have no idea. No, I, I know that. Yeah. I'm just... Yeah, th- th- this, uh, this uncertainty is really frustrating. Yeah, because... Mm-hmm. But when you actually step back from it mm-hmm. and you actually look at the primal forces at play here, very hard to square them. Either... The U.S. and the U.K., but let's talk about the U.S. Mm -hmm. Either the U.S. is going to have to voluntarily give up some of its intelligence tracking for the sake of uh, what the EU is demanding in terms of its citizens' privacy, or the EU is going to have to voluntarily agree to let the U.S. track some of its citizens in a way that it doesn't like. There isn't really a middle ground. Yeah, and I'll, I'll take, take it out of the government surveillance and into corporate surveillance mm. because that's where we're seeing more movement first. And it's actually because of GDPR and European Courts of Justice rulings um, in that uh, you know, 
the EU in particular is looking at things like Facebook, like Google, and frankly, not just those big ones that we know about, but the entire ad tech surveillance mechanism by which we're tracked in every single movement we make online yeah. um, in order to sell our attention to advertisers in real-time bidding with very, very granular, uh, very, very frighteningly invasive descriptions of who we are that we're being advertised to. Mm. Uh, they're looking at it and they're saying, you know, this is not sustainable. How do we, whether it's using data protection law, whether it's using competition law, uh, make these organizations change their business model. And that's what they're working very hard on doing right now. And uh, just yesterday, there was a uh, ruling in the European Courts of Justice looking at uh, a retailer that was putting a Facebook like button on their website and saying, yes, you as a controller are responsible for your decision to put that like button on the website. Now, you're not necessarily liable for what Facebook does with the data afterwards, but you're liable for having put in that button on your uh, on your uh, website. And if there's enough risk of fines of putting that button on your website, which is a tracking mechanism, then retailers may stop doing that. Mm. Uh, which will affect Facebook's business model. Mm. So little things like that. It's a you know, very, very small buildup, and it's you know, from what I can tell, uh, you know, various uh, bodies in Europe are looking very carefully at how we can change business models to protect people better and force a change in a way that you know it, it finding Facebook won't matter finding any of these large uh, you know, companies you know wh whether it's Facebook whether it's Vodafone for having text messaged people they shouldn't have text messaged mm -hmm. the fine is just another you know cost of business that is mm -hmm. taken into account put on the balance sheet it's forcing a change in business model well you come across as someone who's looking for answers to this which is good uh, and optimistic as well, which is also uh, good. I'm not as optimistic as you are on the basic issue of squaring those circles, but I'm glad that somebody is looking mm -hmm. for answers to this and looking for to build yeah. solutions rather than... Uh, honestly, one of the biggest answers is the business opportunity for organizations that want to provide services to customers that replace these really, really invasive yeah, things. Yeah, funnily enough, we uh, recently spoke to a, a startup business which is doing exactly that. An Irish guy based in New York just got $4 million of funding. His business is called Epica, and essentially what they do is build an API-like structure that sits in the cloud that um, not quite automates, but significantly helps developers to bake in privacy, uh, um, privacy conscious code into uh, software. Yeah. So maybe that is an example. Yeah, uh, there's massive, massive risks. And uh, frankly, the, the potential for disaster is hmm. really, really there. But there, there's real opportunities for, you know, again, companies like Ethica, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you know, we, we've dealt with some startups in Ireland mm -hmm. as well that are trying to figure out privacy respecting and uh, you know, th th things that will uh, help people and solve problems for mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in a way that uh, respects their privacy, that you know, allows for uh, you know, more compliant ways to do things, designs privacy and compliance and uh, you know, uh, ethical business management mm -hmm. into the system 
rather than working from the move fast and break things mode. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Dr. Catherine O'Keefe, Director of Training and Research at Castlebridge here in Dublin, uh, thank you very much for coming into studio to explain all that uh, to us this week. And that's all we have time for ourselves. So for me, Adrian Wechter, the tech editor of the Irish and Sunday Independent, thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.